Welcome back to Rupture Radio. I'm your host, Dermot Flood. Before I go to today's interview, I just want to note that Rupture Issue 8 is due out next month. The theme of the issue is imperialism and will feature articles on the basis for war in the 21st century, Ireland and neocolonialism, and the Irish language. If you'd like to subscribe to the magazine, I'll leave a link below. This week, I interviewed David Broder, the author of First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy, and Europe editor for Jacobin magazine. We discussed the recent collapse of the Italian government, headed by Mario Draghi, the general political situation, and the rise of the Italian far right. David also has an upcoming book entitled Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. I'll link David's Twitter in the episode description below, where listeners can find more information. Okay, so I'll switch to the interview now. All right, David Broder, thank you for joining me. Oh, well, thanks for having me on. So as outlined in the intro, you've done some great work uh, following the political situation in Italy, particularly the recent collapse of the government and the ongoing growth of the Italian far right. Just to get things started, could you explain what's caused the sudden breakdown of the government led by Mario Draghi in the recent weeks? Okay, well, the government led by Mario Draghi was always had a fundamental instability, which is that it claimed to be a government of national unity and to sort of span both centre-left and centre-right. Um, but it brought together parties that had stood against each other in the previous general election in 2018, which had formed different governments of different coloration, like during the parliamentary term. Uh, so first Lega with Five Star, then uh, Five Star with Democrats, centre-left. Um, but we always knew that there were bound to be elections by spring 2023. So within the logic of Draghi's government, uh, although there was this huge spectacle uh, whipped up by both Italian and international liberal media of of Draghi as this like savior figure from outside politics who was going to you know kickstart the country and so on, the parties within the coalition were always trying to signal their own particular achievements and to um, get one over on each other and basically prepare the ground for the uh, the, the election that was always going to come. Um, and one of the, the strange features as well was that the Five Star Movement, um, led by Giuseppe Conte, um, had a third of the seats in Parliament, but was politically very weak and is polling only around 10%. Uh, so much of Draghi's uh, agenda was actually trying to unpick some of the big achievements that the Five Star Movement had achieved in in, in the last uh, four years, uh, which were you know not particularly impressive, but but something it could run. So so one of the big things is that Five Star introduced a job seekers allowance, which is called citizens income. But it's very similar to uh, job seeker benefits in other countries, and that was put in question by the other parties, including the right parties in the in the government. And um, so basically, Five Star were not happy with this and they said that they were going to withdraw from the government and basically the other parties thought well five stars never going to want to you know they basically didn't believe that yeah. they would risk going to early elections but in the end five star actually did pull out um i think you know even the last few hours before the no no confidence vote um really no one knew whether Draghi's government was going to survive. And it was very unclear whether he even wanted to go on. Uh, a lot of the coverage was kind of based on like this idea, like, oh, do we even deserve for, right. for Draghi to continue to be prime minister when these awful parties are like asserting their own agendas rather than submitting to the general will as represented by him? 
Um, so, I mean, I think there is actually, a, it is an interesting question whether he, he did want to go on, because in his final speech uh, to the, the Senate on the morning that the government basically collapsed, uh, he very harshly criticised the parties within his government in a way which unmistakably showed that he wants to both shape his own legacy as prime minister, but probably also like be a political figure in future. And one of the things which was also interesting was that Giorgio Melani, who we'll talk about, I'm sure, the uh, leader of the far right Fratelli d'Italia, which is the only party not in his government, um, she called for early elections, said it's time for Italians to decide. But then actually already the day after the government collapsed and it was clear that there would be elections, she kind of said on uh, uh, on in a TV interview, she said, well, Draghi probably knows the economic situation is worse than we know so far. There's going to be this energy crisis in autumn, and you know Draghi will want to be able to say, "Well, all this happened because I wasn't there anymore." Um, so obviously, she's kind of getting in her excuses mm. uh, early there. But I think also what she says is, isn't uh, isn't untrue. Yeah, and I have like been following a lot of the kind of liberal commentary, and I suppose maybe it's it's from the more uh, liberal or centre left papers have been arguing that. Uh, you know, Draghi just wanted to get to business and that the Italian people, when voting, should seek to restore the balance that has been disrupted by these parties, um, as you mentioned. But one of the most notable aspects and, and something you covered in your recent New York Times article was the possibility that the far right could take government. And this is represented mostly by the so-called post-fascist brothers of Italy who have been topping opinion polls. Um, in that context, like, what, how has their rapid growth happened and what can we learn about it in, in other contexts, I suppose? Well, the thing is with Fratelli d'Italia, it's basically the continuation of an old party called Movimento Sociale Italiano, MSI, which was the main neo-fascist party of post-war decades. Uh, in the 90s, it kind of dropped a lot of its historic baggage uh, and ultimately even joined directly into Berlusconi's party. But then the contradiction is actually in 2012, it then quit again. Right. So it's kind of less surely sort of is less explicitly anti-fascist now, less post than it was even in the 90s. Right. Basically, it says, you know, fascism isn't an issue anymore. We don't want to talk about this. What about the crimes of the left uh, is very much its uh, agenda. Um, so, I mean, we've seen, I mean, even in the, when it was created in 2012, it was a very small party, which achieved the kind of scores you'd expect from a small and identitarian party, like in the, 2013 general election, uh, it scored 2% of the vote. In 2018, it scored 4% of the vote. Um, but then, you know, in recent years in Italian politics, because of uh, the very long-term economic stagnation, because of the sense that governments can't really change anything, um, we have this series of so-called outsiders who apparently come from outside the established parties who are going to come in and shake things up and mm. change everything. Uh, and so we've seen a lot of examples of that, both people like Draghi or before him Mario Monti, as in like, you know, like central bankers and technocrats, but then also these um, parties like the Five Star Movement, like Matteo Salvini's Lega. Uh, I mean, the, the Lega by comparison, you know, 2013 scored 4% of the vote, 2019 European election, 34% of the vote, now about 14%. Mm. So we, we've seen a lot of these parties which have sudden surges of support. Uh, and then it's like a kind of bubble, but they in turn just can't really do anything. So I, I think in a way Fratelli d'Italia follows this trend. Like basically, if you look at where its voters are coming from, it's mainly switches from other right-wing parties. 
So with the collapse of Berlusconi's old party, Forza Italia, and with the recent, more recent decline of the Lega, um, Fratelli d'Italia has become the beneficiary of that and is currently polling about a quarter of the vote. And there seems also ahead of the election, there's a certain kind of polarization between the centre-left Democrats and Fratelli d'Italia. So I think we can fully expect Fratelli d'Italia will get at least a quarter of the vote. Um, so in a way, I think it's just, partly it's just a product of a kind of general volatility, uh, also because because it was the only like major party in parliament not in Draghi's government. Fratelli d'Italia could both be the only opposition and sort of feed on right-wing dissatisfaction mm. with that government, while also actually moving uh, towards softer and more moderate positions, precisely because it had no kind of competition uh, in terms of so so basically the way that played out was that it supported Draghi's fundamental like economic policy uh, while also raising these kind of culture wars talking points uh, and basically claiming that the left in government as it called the Draghi administration uh, was like you know pursuing um, you know like uh, ethnic uh, substitution right, of okay. people yeah. in this kind of thing uh, so so I mean. While I say all this about like the way it's a beneficiary of like volatility and these kind of like superficial polling trends and stuff, I mean the other element is of course that uh, over um, many years uh, since the particularly since the nineteen nineties, basically Italian politics in general has become significantly less anti-fascist and significantly more polarized around issues of national identity and culture wars and what's kind of a a little strange or contradictory in Fratelli d'Italia is it's a party whose leaders have been ministers before under Berlusconi and which is not treated as an extremist or weird force uh, but which also does enjoy a certain kind of outsiderishness just because it's not been in any of the governments of the last decade. Right and as you touch on in in your recent writing like and as so often happens, in the absence of like an organized socialist force or in that vacuum where you have polarization, it's easier for far right forces to um, enter the stage and, and, and tap into people's like sometimes genuine frustration. And I think in your recent article for Jacobin, you noted that the far right's advance has been underlined by the failure of the left to maintain what used to be like an old or traditional working class base. So I was wondering if you could explain what the general situation is facing the Italian left, or even what the like standing of the Italian left to the extent it exists is. Well, I'll start with talking about the 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 way in which the far right benefits, because I think it's often too easy to imagine that uh, the there's a kind of direct switch of like disgruntled working class voters who yes. are no longer on the left, so they vote for the far right instead. So, of course, there's always been an element of the working class that votes for um, right wing and far right parties. Uh, and actually, um, in the uh, in the Italian case, if we look at a party like the Lega, which actually has much stronger blue collar support even now than Fratelli d'Italia, uh, you know, it has blue collar support. But the kind of workers it's winning over are like people who work in very small businesses who'd be unlikely to be in trade unions who who don't really fit the profile of like what the old working class left vote was right uh and also it's not the case that um Fratelli d'Italia wins over workers through um social or protectionist um policies um it um it, when it talks about creating employment 
or when it talks about defending the interests of Italian workers, which actually doesn't do very much, mm. much less than the party like the Front National, uh, Rassemblement National in France. It does so on the uh, basically with like Thatcherite ideas. Right. It says lower taxes for businesses who employ more workers. Right. So, of course, like in a political context in which there isn't a strong working class left, where there isn't a socialist uh, poll, as you said, uh, it's easier for those kind of ideas to win over parts of a disorganized and um, uh, like an atomized working class, which lacks its own like political identity and representation. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely not I mean, the, the kind of language people use sometimes of like welfare chauvinism or protectionism, these kind yeah. of things. They don't apply well to a party like Fratelli d'Italia. Um, it poses itself, although it, the the historic far right often did call itself the social right and would have sort of like demagogic, like anti-banker, mm. sort of anti-corporation elements. Fratelli d'Italia really doesn't follow in that tradition. It, it, it is, you know, since it joined the Berlusconi government in the 90s, it's basically been a free marketeer right, okay. party. Um, as for the, but what it certainly does benefit from is the disaggregation of the old working class left vote. Uh, of course, in Italy, there used to be a mass uh, communist party, uh, which even in the 80s had you know, well over a million members. Uh, in the elections in the mid 80s, the communist party would get you know, 11, 12 million votes. Uh, and now uh, the, that party basically in the 90s uh, began its uh, movement into becoming a liberal party defined above all by its attachment to the European Union uh, and uh, the, the Democrats. And the Democrats are a party which has the old communist, like most of the old communist party, plus like fragments of the old Christian Democrats, some smaller liberal forces. And it is running in this election as the party that upholds the draggy government's record. Okay. So the draggy government was itself a coalition of centre left and centre right. The Democrats say this is this is us, and they're the party of you know the institutions of the tie to the European Union and so on. And the problem with that is that you know over the last um, two decades, not only has Italian GDP overall uh, shrunk, like mm. even before the pandemic, but we, even within those terms. Um, workers have become relatively poorer uh social protections have been uh, dismantled including by uh, democrat governments uh, there's been permanent budget austerity since 1999 uh so uh in that context it's harder for uh, the left to do win working class support except on the basis of a kind of residual uh, anti-fascism which is increasingly kind of sloganistic and, and hollow and lacking in in social content um, there are also some forces to the left of the Democrats, of course, uh, some of which have already been incorporated into it, some of which, like there's a party called uh, Sinistra Italiana, Italian left, and the Greens, who are basically currently sort of uh, trying to negotiate their way into the Democrats' okay. coalition, but which includes very hawkish neoliberal centrist forces, like this guy Carlo Calenda, who was uh, economy minister under Matteo Renzi, the Democrat prime minister in the mid-2010s, and he's basically like, he sees himself and projects himself as like the Italian Emmanuel Macron. Right. Okay. So you've got these small, somewhat left-wing parties who want to be part of that alliance, but they're they're being shat on too much. Yeah. You know, they've been given too few seats and so on. Then there are some smaller, um, far-left forces like the the heirs to uh, well, Rifondazione Comunista, which mm. was like a fairly uh, 
you know, a party in the 90s and 2000s, which had several MPs, uh, Poteria Popolo, uh, which is based uh, party based on the social centre in Naples, which got 1% in 2018. And then uh, Luigi Di Magistris, who was mayor of Naples for the throughout the 2010s. So they're trying to get together a small, uh, uh, well, they don't hope it will be small, but it is small. Uh, they've got together a small recruitment called Unione Popolare, popular union which of course explicitly takes its name from the french uh uh, movement uh much in the italian tradition uh in 2015 we had a cipras list um so you know i think that's uh you know they at least are like trying to create a some sort of alternative poll they may even actually make some sort of alliance with the five star movement which under giuseppe conte's leadership has become more sort of social democratic um, but overall, the, uh, the 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 you know what we've seen for many decades since the collapse of the old communist party is a very fundamental disaggregation of the left working class vote. And actually, the the Democrat Party, the main centre left party, uh, the richer you are, the more likely you are to vote for it. And of course, that's not actually true even of say the U.S. Democrats, mm. where despite the rhetoric about the Rust Belt working class vote for Trump, whatever, that's still a minority of the Republicans. Whereas like the Democrats in Italy are very much a, a party of um older and wealthier voters. And to stay on that point then, like the to the extent you did mention that there is a very atomized and fractious working class in Italy, um, where does the, the working class vote generally go in Italy? Is it spread amongst those parties? You did mention Five Star, I think, would have drawn in a lot of those layers. Um, but that has also kind of drifted over time. Yeah, I mean, in the um, in the it was interesting in the in the twenty eighteen election, there was some interesting polling of you know where did the the votes come from, both in terms of you know politically where does it come from and socially, and what we found out was that uh, the 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 single like if you take like who voted for the Communist Party in the eighties, who obviously mm. relatively older voters, the biggest single chunk goes to Five Star. Yes, so okay. if you think like the voters who are you would think to be like basically like. The, the most representative of like a left working class vote, like about a third of that went to Five Star, about a third went to the centre left, uh, a small amount went to the far right, and basically, but then also there's like a big amount of abstention. Uh, Five Star in 2018 also heavily, uh, it's got very high among uh, unemployed people uh, in Southern Italy, uh, and where, so both among unemployed people and in Southern Italy, it got like half the vote. Okay. So basically, we've seen that vote has collapsed, and it's not entirely clear where it's gone to. Certainly, the Lega's um, blue-collar vote has strengthened over time. Um, Fratelli d'Italia remains a party which is strongest among like the self-employed and small business owners. Um, but I mean, the overall, uh, the overall and sort of historical answer beyond this particular election cycle is that there is massive working-class uh, abstention. Like if you look at Italian elections uh, in the 70s or 80s, they would regularly have well over 90 percent turnout, yeah. often as high as 95 percent. Whereas I, you know, today probably regional elections have about 50 percent, and the general election maybe 70 percent. So I think like there is still a left wing working class vote, but it's become much less distinctive, and at the same time, working class turnout has collapsed. Yeah, it's interesting, and uh, like a, a notable point is. 
even if the right is to be victorious after this election and the most likely coalition which has been touted um, is still contains a right which is divided between the brothers of Italy, uh, Lega, Forza Italia and smaller groups and all of those of you mentioned have like different emphasis in terms of political um, program and outlook. So uh, the question is then what would this coalition look like and just how stable would this be? Is Italy facing another like however many years of instability in terms of uh, at least the formal political uh, organizations? Well, firstly, I'd say that um, judging by the recent past and what we've seen with, for example, the rise of the Lega and in its own way, the rise of Five Star, it's quite hard to believe the Fratelli d'Italia will do much different because the fundamental problems of like Italian political economy, like the enormous public debt, the inability to uh, make serious like alternative policy choices within the Eurozone framework, particularly given the debt, uh, and um, also the fact that you know we're expecting a, a very sharp recession uh, would tend to make you think like that uh, Fratelli d'Italia led government will soon face very choppy waters. At the same time, even in terms of like making it into a more coherent party, uh, Fratelli d'Italia is a party that, that um, only controls two very small regional governments. So it's not really like the Lega where although it's been in and out of government several times already since the early 90s, it's always had like very big regional strongholds. Like, for example, the Lega runs the regional government of Lombardy, which the region around Milan, which alone represents like a quarter of Italian GDP. So even when the Lega has been relatively on the back foot, it still had very strong power bases and, um, you know, like a sort of militant cadre structures and so on. So it didn't really succeed in expanding that across the whole of Italy, even at the height of its support, but still it's quite a strong residual base. Fratelli d'Italia, it's harder to tell. Another thing we know already about the if there is a government of the the, the together, the so-called centre-right parties, um, Fratelli d'Italia, Forza d'Italia and the Lega, and the smaller ones, is that um, Meloni is already strongly talking up the idea that key ministries will be handed to technocratic figures outside of the parties. So Salvini's already tr- sort of trying to say like, oh yeah, well, I'll be interior minister because Salvini was interior minister in 2018-19, big platform for him. There's lots of reasons to think that won't happen again. Also because even within the Lega, um, the 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 regional sort of power brokers, they're more interested in controlling like economic ministries that will disperse like recovery fund money than just giving Salvini a propaganda platform for himself, particularly as he's no longer seen as a like a winner. Um Meloni and uh, or at least as reported by by papers like La Repubblica, uh there's this Apparently, uh, internally, Fratelli d'Italia are talking about handing ministries to people who were already ministers in the previous Berlusconi government. For example, Giulio Tremonti, who was finance minister throughout most of Berlusconi's government. So, so basically, someone like who's seen as like a liberal right, okay. and normal, uh, if you will, uh, like a normal neoliberal politician. Right. At the same time, Milani has said that uh, there'll be uh, total continuity with Draghi's foreign policy. And actually, as I predicted in my article is making a big deal of the fact that the support for Ukraine will be like okay. completely unchanged because yeah. it's often like Salvini is uh, well accurately painted as someone who's like often said positive things about Putin and Russia and been there a lot of times. So she's kind of trying to say 
we're not going to be weird or extremist. Uh, but I think like at the same time as that, in order to provide some sort of red meat for her own base and actually in order to do anything that will like make her government be able to do anything that really defines it, I think we will have um, some big symbolic and identitarian moves um, which suit the post-fascist tradition, one of which is uh, some sort of, you know, they're talking about like a, a naval blockade against migrant boats. Right. Uh, one of which is uh, to uh, codify in law some sort of ban on apologia of communism. Uh, already in several regions of Italy, uh, it's um, basically like um, it's, uh, there, there can be no public funds for historians or institutions who don't accept uh, a certain retelling of like the crimes of Yugoslav right. against Italians. Fratelli d'Italia talks about um, changing the constitution so that um, denying that Yugoslav partisans killed 12,000 innocent Italians would be tantamount to Holocaust denial. And in fact, only the Holocaust and the victims of Yugoslav partisans would be would be protected in in this right. way. Uh, at the same time, uh, another big uh, focus of their agenda is to replace the uh, constitution based on uh, parties in parliament with a presidentialist system, more like the French or mm. U.S. system. We don't know what that would be, but basically, if the right has two thirds of seats, it will be able to change the constitution right, okay. uh, without going to a referendum. Um, so that's another thing that could be a big focus if indeed the government uh, is able to survive more than a few months. Yeah, and uh, like I think a a notable portion of your article focuses on the like strident anti-communist like messaging of all of this, and I think your what you're mes- mentioning there in terms of just historical revisionism is something we've seen repeated uh, throughout the world. There was stuff in American coverage in terms of uh, just of slavery and in Britain as well of like the imperial past. Um, it's interesting how that is like caught on. Um, but to focus in then on the uh, Brothers of Italy and specifically uh, Giorgio Maloney, you start your recent uh, New York Times article, and I did see you have an ongoing thread on Twitter where you follow all the all of her mentions uh, of the Great Replacement theory, which is something we've seen crop up even here in Ireland in in far right circles. It seems to have um, kind of imported its way over from American far right discourse and has found its way uh, globally. But I don't know if what the roots are. Um, but you mentioned that there's a, a quote from uh, Maloney in which he stated that if this is the end in if, if this is the end in fire, then we'll all burn together, um, which is obviously a terrifying quote, given the wor- worsening uh, environmental situation. Um, so just the question, then, what would the impact of these groups coming to power be? And what, in your view, does this signal for where things are heading elsewhere? Well, part of the part of the the thing with the quote of if this is all to end in fire is that uh, that's a quote from Meloni's book, but which is from an Ed Sheeran song from okay. uh, Hobbit films. Right. Okay. So just as ominous, I'm sure <laughs> it is ominous, uh, and also in a way, it's ominous that she would rely as a sort of polemical crutch on something so uh, trivial. Yeah. But um, I mean, I, I must admit that I am um, not well aware of the uh, Tolkien's books or films, but uh, they recur very much in um, uh, Maloney's um, uh, book, 
partly because it's a kind of folksy thing yeah. partly because actually the the hobbit and lord of the rings kind of world has always been heavily cited by the italian far right like in the 70s they had these uh summer camps called camp hobbit uh which um and like they draw on this for this like very um kind of simplistic uh worldview of like civilizational right decline so one of the things she talks about in her in her memoir uh which is called i am georgia is um in the lord of the rings like world there's a uh, i anyone who's read the books will hate me saying this because i have no idea i've never read them <laughs> but judging by what georgia Mulani tells us about them there's this civilization called numenor which used to be the best empire and it was like blessed by god and was the best one but then the people stopped believing in god and they got too uh lax and easy and they didn't care about defending their society anymore then it got overrun and destroyed and uh this is like uh obviously fits together uh with and is a kind of chintzy way of talking about great replacement mm. theory which is a theory she's advocated many, many times. Um, I was on an Italian TV show. Part of the reason for the thread is I was on this Italian TV show uh, faced with this ludicrous uh, fascist uh, senator called Daniela Santanque, uh, who's who's like uh, <laughs> someone who like um, called herself a fascist only like ten years ago, right. okay. like old Alessandro Mussolini that um, that sh her granddad would be revolving in his turning in his grave because she's not enough of a fascist. Yes, of course, I've seen that. And, and then I mentioned uh, that, that Meloni has repeatedly um, spoken in terms of a plan for ethnic substitution driven by George Soros, like an obviously anti-Semitic uh, story. And then some other journalists from this right-wing uh, paper uh, said, oh, she's never said that. You're just mm -hmm. some like American, uh, as he called me, who um, doesn't know how to use sources. So yeah, so I mean, there's many examples of her... Um, talking about this now I, I find it kind of interesting in the way that you think like obviously the way that like say jeremy corbyn was treated in britain yeah. in terms of like alleged uh softness on anti-semitism and stuff whereas in this case it's kind of like oh well yeah sure she may have said that but after all she doesn't want to leave the <laughs> nato and is committed to supporting ukraine so like does it really matter yeah. and like often this stuff is treated in terms of like nostalgia or just like this kind of trivial Stuff. So, I mean, of course, it's true. Like, they're not going to introduce like a fascist dictatorship no. in Italy. I mean, an analogy I often draw is like if you see a guy at a Trump rally with a Confederate flag, it's very unlikely that he literally wants to reintroduce slavery and break up the union. But nonetheless, the fact of the waving that flag also really does tell us something about his politics. And I think like the the Milani. Uh, government uh, basically uh, plans to uh, erase anti-fascism from public life, to criminalize parts of the left, to promote a war among the poor, to undermine the welfare state, also to, um, as, as another uh, issue, uh, which may sound almost a little, um, you know, uh, a kind of do-gooder thing to talk about when we're talking about, you know, like a far-right party, but like, uh, Milani's plan is basically to get rid of any kind of like environmental right okay agenda. yeah so like um one her um her like environmental representative uh who's a guy called um Nic Nicola uh Procaccini, basically so he's like the party's environmental spokesperson and he basically says like oh well 
uh, we on the right, well, of course we want to defend life, like life in the womb. Okay. Like, you know, um, fetuses, and we care about, you know, protecting our beautiful country, but then we're not going to listen to, like, people telling us to do environmental regulations when, like, China is... So, So then you get this kind of narrative which is kind of like well what we need to do to save the environment is to like kickstart the production of like um a diesel cars in italy on the grounds that they're like better for the environment than some imaginary like chinese car oh, yeah, so, so so like i i think the the thing is is that the 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 the, the fratelli d'italia government or le- led government isn't going to be like a fascist regime but it will just be at war with any kind of progress and will call its opponents uh, communists uh, no matter where they're actually from on the political spectrum. So even though I don't believe that, you know, a lot of my, my articles often reported in Italian media as saying like, well, the Americans say fascism is coming back. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it. The, they can be very dangerous and reactionary even without, uh, you know, literally uh, destroying democracy. I thought an important point here you mentioned is in terms of disengagement, a large section um, of the Italian population is not voting um, or is just viewing that there's no alternative or, or that, you know, we are um, stuck in a rock and a hard place, not central in the European Union. Um, they feel, I don't know, uh, uh, kind of on the periphery um, and there's difficulties as there is in many parts of the world um but you wonder like what it would take to to break down this indifference uh to provide a credible alternative and if any of the left groups are even capable of doing so uh or this this uh uh united the this alliance that you mentioned um is there any purview for anything like that providing a credible alternative to the situation well i'd start from the the, a kind of more historical observation which is that it's very difficult to get out of the situation we're currently in given what's happened over the last 30 or 40 years particularly in the sense that the left in the form of the democrat party but which is certainly seen by most people as the left and with which you know even more left-wing groups ally themselves the left is the force that has done most to commit italy to the current failed growth model that it's on like in terms of um, stoutly defending the austerity that was necessary to prepare Euro membership, and then each of the rounds of austerity that then came after, uh, in terms of uh, being the actual agent of like the destruction of kind of 1970s worker rights and so on, um, the the the, the centre left has played a really key role in that. And at the same time, uh, some of the the more some of the outsiders and competitors like Five Star Movement also had a very poor record like in government they didn't change things they they whipped up a big uh, hope of like kicking out the political class we'll have honest politicians and direct democracy and we'll change things and they didn't and i think the problem is is that you get to the point where like say for someone who's like 40 or 50 years old and uh, in italy that could very easily be someone who's still living with their parents and perhaps still doing like a very low paid right job and have very little prospects like in their lifetime they won't have seen the left or trade unions um achieving stuff that helps them of course you can point to some things right 
like you can point to some local initiatives and governments and some struggles that have won and you know there's things like um amazon workers organizing or like uh, there are some kind of anti-racist struggles also linked to labor organizing farm workers in southern italy some civil rights advances but my point really is like these haven't been the things that have set the terms of national politics for some decades and if we even look at some of the countries where the left has appeared to have more of a revival um you know for example like france Mm -hmm. then both Firstly, like that has relied to a certain degree on like political personnel who are drawn from previous eras, but who are still with us, like you know, Melanchon, who's like whatever, like 70 years old. Uh, but also just like the 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 general kind of popular belief in the weakness of the state and the inability of politics to change things is much less in the French is less bad in the French case than the Italian one. So I think the problem is kind of how do you start rebuilding the left um when all of those kind of conditions seem absent yeah. um so i think like you know it's not that there's nothing uh you know there's some things like for example like the i think the 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 pandemic response actually was quite a positive moment for italian society and for the left in that it somewhat contradicted the idea that Italians are just kind of individualistic and selfish and and anti and sort of anti-social. You know, there's this whole discourse of kind of amoral familism and stuff, this idea of like Italians just like don't act in a social way. Uh, so I think like it, you know, f- for its faults, uh, the Italian um corona response and even some of the actions of Giuseppe Conte's governments in terms of there was like a layoffs freeze, for instance. Okay. So and there were certain like pro-worker measures. So with all their limits, I think those kind of things did point in a more positive uh, direction. But, I mean, broadly, you'd say it would be quite hard to identify positive trends. And certainly, like, I think, although um, I think Luigi de Magistris, uh, as mayor of Naples, who I mentioned earlier, who's like leading this Unione Popolare, this People's Union list, um, you know, as mayor of Naples, he led a kind of regeneration very premised on rebuilding tourism, which I don't think is a good growth model, particularly because it's one reliant on rents and low wages. But, you know, I mean, so so from that perspective too, I think it would be hard to say, well, you know, he's going to be the like Italian equivalent of Melanchon or something or Corbyn or Sanders or whatever. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily look to a uh, cobbling together an electoral list a few weeks in advance of the election as the best way to go about rebuilding the left. So overall, I'd say that there's been like a long pattern of decline of the working class left connection. You can point to many uh, struggles that exist and some signs of of hope. But overall, I'd say it, it would be very difficult to predict a, a positive uh, future for the Italian left. It's all very, all very positive sounding. <laughs> and um, I think even more kind of maybe... Uh decisive is in your book uh first they took rome you raised the argument that italy could serve as like the country of the future or uh its political trends or its economic situation serve serves as some sort of mirror um for what could be faced in other countries in in europe and and even globally so what is the nature of this uh situation and what lessons do you think can be drawn from the italian case well so i think there's two key elements of 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 the argument i make one of which is like what happens to a democracy once the whole once the levers of economic decision making 
cease to be like meaningfully in debate. Like once the vote basically doesn't affect what happens. Uh, this is particularly the case because of Italy's uh, debt, like debt plus Eurozone membership, which have basically committed it to this path of like um, constant budget austerity, uh, ever sinking investment. And that in turn has actually sort of made the situation um, for action even worse in the sense that it's like it's hard to imagine that like Italy could compete like Italian business could compete with say German ones at the level of like a high skilled um or yeah like high skilled high quality production right uh and still less can we imagine like Italy is going to like be able to compete with like China on Ooh. cost and instead you have this kind of like um turn towards like uh uh, you know, low skill precarious work uh which in turn creates like a very atomized uh workforce where people don't have much power in their everyday lives so i think there's a kind of desertification of the political terrain a lack of debates over like the big choices at the same time as this kind of um a radicalization of political identities um so it's like you have this um the the, the right in italy is basically no longer has any kind of division between the liberal or sort of traditional conservative right and then people who are just the heirs to fascism. Yes. And in fact, it's very normal, uh, uh, not only for uh, extremist forces to be included in the what's called the centre-right, but even for people who are not from the fascist tradition to just constantly justify and apologise for anything like Fratelli d'Italia does. Uh, and it's obviously we can see an equivalent in like the U.S. Uh, Republican Party in the way in which the like Trump uh, agenda has basically taken over the whole party. Uh, if we look at things too, like um, the uh, French case, I think is interesting as well in the sense that the uh, the barriers against the Rassemblement National, the attempts to like delegitimize it, have have by this point basically collapsed. Like the 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 leaders in the the Republicans, the old Gaullist party, like Eric Ciotti, basically they want some sort of like either to win back the Rassemblement uh, National voters or to make some sort of agreements with them. But basically, they see them as like a legitimate part of yeah. mainstream politics. Um, so I think like it would be mistaken to see this as a return to the past because these forces are. Uh, very like eclectic and um, lack a, a serious or radical proposal for um, changing society in the way that like the sort of a conservative revolution or fascism were a hundred years ago. But nonetheless, I think they're very dangerous because they polarize politics around a exclusivist idea of national identity. Um, so, um, so I think that Italy shows the way in the sense that. Um, because its politics are so volatile, because the party, the, the party structures and so on are so ephemeral, that many of the kind of residual um, um, markers of political identity that we might see in some other countries, you know, for example, like the old, you know, in Britain, like the working class Labour vote, or uh, a sort of residual um, anti-fascism and so on, those kind of things have collapsed in Italy already. So in that sense, I think that Italy, uh, it, it's political system more is a more accurate kind of photograph of the exact moment we're living in in the sense that the kind of residue residue of like past generations of politics has, has been swept away more 
Yeah, I think that's incredibly comprehensive, and I don't know if this is an optimistic um, note, but certainly it definitely isn't. No, <laughs> which is uh, unfortunate. But there's certainly notes to take uh, away from it, and uh, I think we can leave it there. That it did cover quite a lot, and I just point people towards it if they want more uh, your own writing, which I'll link in the episode description, both your articles, um, and then also just yourself. If is there anywhere people can go to find more of your work? Uh, well, I write for Jacobin, uh, and I tweet at Brodely, uh, B-R-O-D-E-R-L-Y. And uh, yes, and my forthcoming book is called Mussolini's Grandchildren. And uh, so that's going to come out in March. Very good. That's something we, we didn't mention in the um, conversation, but I did go and research and it's clear to see like Mussolini's children feature quite prominently through Italian politics and Italian football, which is uh, an interesting point as well. But I'm I'm sure that'll be a very interesting read. Um, So thanks a million for joining us, David. That was a a pleasure. And hopefully we can talk again down the line following the election. Definitely. Well, thanks for having me on. No, no problem at all. Thank you.